Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Daisy Cousins Presents. I'm Daisy Cousins, and I'm thrilled to be right here on ADH-TV every week, twice a week, and I am so excited about this evening's guest. It's pretty well established that comedy and cultural commentary go together like birds of a feather. For as long as there has been comedy, comedians have used it to poke fun at the world around them in order to make a point. From the court jesters of medieval Europe to Chris Rock's latest Netflix special. However, few get the balance of comedy and commentary quite as perfectly as the gentleman we'll be hearing from this evening. Four years ago, I came across a video on YouTube that remains, to this day, the best piece of political satire I have ever seen. It's called Australian Election 2019 Impressions, and I'm going to play a little sample for you right now. G'day, g'day, I'm just your average Aussie. G'day, Cobber, how you fucked the pension? Oh, Jenny and I love the sharks. Oh, God, he's painful. The Nationals have sold out to the Libs. They don't care about us anymore. Oh, why don't you come on over and check out my policies? Oh. I'm voting for Clive Park. Shut up! We want green energy now. You better not make me fucking power bills go up. Just stay secular and moderate. Keep the priests in school. Evolution is a halal conspiracy. If you're Aboriginal, a woman, Muslim or trans, everything wrong in your life is because of white men. What about Indians, Asians and Jews? No, those cultures are actually successful in neoliberal economies. That doesn't make me feel good about myself. <laughs> the full three minute video is, as you can imagine, masterful. The ingenuity of the comedian who created that video extends beyond political commentary and into the realms of observational humour generally. His ability to draw on the world around him to create characters is quite extraordinary, as is his video entitled Indian Uncle Insults. My father is a go-to medical college. Your father is a go-to school of rickshaw. Your mother look like a crap dog. My son work at a McDonald's. Your son work at a Hungry Jack. Hey, Vinod, you smell like a man of Pakistan. You are a drunk idiot like individual of Aussie culture. Your mother have a job of a monkey prostitute. Your mother look like woman of Sri Lanka. Your face look like a fat. I bet you put a sandpaper on your dick like Aussie batsman David Smith. You make fun of my English, but you speak Jiro Hindi. Jiro Hindi. Jiro Complete total zero. <laughs> but it's not only in the realms of YouTube that our guest this evening dwells. He's having an incredible career in stand-up comedy, television, podcasting and screenwriting. And I don't believe he's even yet 30 years old. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to present to you tonight the razor-sharp, the gorgeously nuanced, the terribly, terribly funny comedian extraordinaire Neil Cole Hatkar. Neil, wonderful to see you this evening. How are you? 
Um, great. That was probably the best introduction I think I've ever received from an interview. So I appreciate <laughs> that. Thank you very, very much. It's my pleasure, Neil. You know, you know, I'm a huge fan, absolutely huge fan and thrilled to have you here tonight. Now, Neil, you have had a really, really long career as a YouTuber. And in fact, you started uploading videos when you were just 14 years old. And the video that pushed your channel over the line was a 2013 video simply titled Australia in two minutes, which went viral. It has over four million views. Full disclosure, I was actually going to put a little sample of that in as well, but upon watching it, it really is <laughs> probably a little bit too fabulously rude even for me, unfortunately, but everyone should <laughs> even, get onto even YouTube. Even for the Free Speech Network. Even for the, yes, I, I watched it, I went, oh, my heavens, probably should just recommend people watch it, but it's phenomenal. What inspired you. you to start YouTube at such a young age? Well, uh, being a millennial, uh, as you say, I'm 29 years old. I grew up with the internet. I was watching a lot of YouTubers when I was a teenager. And I was very interested in acting, particularly character acting. I loved Chris Lilly. I was a huge fan of Chris Lilly, huge fan of Sasha Baron Cohen. And I think I got my first camcorder when I was, I would have been about 12, started playing around with it. And I guess it all just made sense. I started recording myself, doing various impressions, performing various characters and started a YouTube channel uh, in 2007, I believe. And the rest is history. And it is fabulous history indeed. You have you have over about 618,000 YouTube subscribers now, don't you? Yeah, it's about that. That's a hell of a number. I have 215,000, so still... So You're getting there. <laughs> get, getting there. That's not, quite not, good. Not, it's not too bad. Yeah, you know, we're always dealing with algorithms, aren't we, as independents? But, you know, we're climbing the numbers up there. How are you going on the other social media platforms? The other social media platforms, what do I have, like 35,000 on Twitter, 17 or so on Insta and 20K on Facebook? Not too bad. I'm not, I'm not on TikTok because I'm, I'm afraid that the Chinese Communist Party is just going to spy on me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you know getting, getting there indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Ironically enough, I had those same reservations about TikTok, but I decided to get on the platform in 2020. And even then I felt too old for it because it seemed like everyone was under 18. And now I have 1.2 million followers on there. So the CCP love me, obviously. The CCP must, must adore you. That's incredibly impressive. Maybe I will, you know what? I think you've inspired me. Why don't I, I get on TikTok and I'll see if I can hit that, that marvelous goal that you've hit. Now, speaking of hitting goals, uh, Neil, you really hit the nail on the head in terms of where the power lies in society with your comedy. And, and we could really see that in a video that you made that hits very close to home for me. Um, this video is called Coming Out in 2019 and we've got a little <laughs> clip. I've been struggling with this for a while and I think I'm finally ready to talk about it. Man, you can tell us anything. We're here for you. Okay, good. Um, it's not easy, but I want to be true to myself and the people around me, so here goes. I'm a conservative. What? I'm a conservative. <laughs> I'm right wing. <laughs> Hang on. You're kidding, right? No. Why would I joke about this? But you're brown, how can you be right-wing? Look, I, I know it's not what you'd expect, but this is me, this is who I am. No, 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 it's probably just a phase, you know? Yeah, yeah, don't, don't worry, you'll get over it soon. Yeah. <laughs> Now, Neil, as, as I'm sure the audience can tell, you've used the kind of trope of someone coming out as gay, uh, but flipped it as to someone coming out as, as conservative, and the video sort of continues in that vein, and your, your friends say to you things like, I, I can't believe I let you babysit my kids, which, <laughs> which is, you know, right out of that vein. But what inspired you to make that video? Well, the biggest inspiration for that video in particular, I think is because I've existed in the arts and media industry for a long time. And as someone who's in the media industry yourself, I think you would understand that it is an overwhelmingly left-leaning industry. And I, even if I'm trying to articulate a centrist or a center-right, I, I would call a reasonable opinion, uh, 
it felt as though that was looked down upon and that was shamed. And as a result, I was inspired to make a video like that. Well, it certainly um, encompasses a lot of what young conservatives, uh, I mean, I'm conservative, a bit of a right-wing populist nowadays, but, you know, under the umbrella of, of conservatism, it, it comprises what a lot of us struggle with in work and also socially, which is when you come out as conservative, unless you hide it to yourself, you will often deal with that kind of reaction. I, I mean, did you ever have colleagues or friends, if you expressed an opinion that was different to their wokeism or leftism, who would just sort of cut you dead or, or not talk to you anymore? Sure, and I would even go as far as to say it's not just conservative opinions that are being shut down like that. It seems as though even centre-left opinions at this point are being criticised and unfairly castigated by what is often called the, the far left or the woke or whatever you want to call them. Uh, I remember distinctly, I think I was 15 and I was never even particularly political, but this was around the time when I believe it was Julia Gillard who was the prime minister, maybe Kevin Rudd, it was in that era, and they were looking to implement the carbon tax. And I, being a 15 year old, I didn't exactly have a nuanced opinion about it. I didn't even have a strong opinion. I just was asking questions like, okay, how would this tax affect the economy? Not even making an opinion. And I remember among my troop of theatre actors, and let's be honest, theatre actors are all <laughs> going to be overwhelmingly left-wing, <laughs> but it wasn't as though they were disagreeing with the opinion. It really did feel like they were almost shunning me as a person just for asking that kind of a question. And I think from that moment on, I felt like, okay, I'm not part of this group. I, I don't, I wouldn't call myself a, a conservative as such, but I'm definitely not part of this tribe, if you want to put it that way. Mm, well, it, it does become very tribal, is, isn't it, when you have, you know, members, if you're perceived, because as well, because you're brown as well, people, identity politics-wide, would just assume that you're left-wing, you're brown and you're an entertainer. Um, and it does become quite tribal, doesn't it? So I'm, I'm wondering, what was the reaction to that video? Did you happen to have any sort of little young conservatives in your DMs going, hey, Neil, really, you really <laughs> hit the nail on the head with that one? I had a few. I certainly had a few. I remember a few liberal politicians shared the video. Uh, <laughs> I think because I've, I've built up a brand of posting content that's similar to that, I didn't get an overwhelming sense that there was a mob out to get me or anything. I remember the first video that really took off that dealt with similar sort of themes would have been modern education, and that's still my best video to date. And that was when there was a furor on, on Twitter in particular, and there were some people accusing me of being funded by the Liberal Party, and it, look, I wish. Uh, <laughs> there was no funding for that. And, um, all sorts of things, uh, as I'm sure many of your you know, viewers and, and listeners can attest to and can uh, relate to. Uh, so, yeah, there was, there was a mixed response. Um, the coming out in 2019 video, there was a little bit of that response, but I think I've, I've just done this sort of content now for the better part of a decade. So people know who I am, people know what I put out, and if they're still going to get mad about it, then that's on them. Well, you, you really were ahead of your time, Neil. You know, you have been putting this kind of content out for nearly a decade, and you mentioned um, your short film, Modern Education. That came out in 2015. You wrote it, you directed it, and you also starred in it. It currently has 19 million views, like the very definition of a viral video, and I'm just going to play a little clip of that one as well. Now, our first question, one plus one. Yes. Two. Incorrect. Yes. Multiculturalism. Well done, Simon. Next question. What is three times three? Yes. Nine. Wrong. Yes, Penelope. Gender equality. Very good, Penelope. Is this a joke? You think gender equality is a joke? No, but isn't this a maths class? Don't be so racist. I just asked a question. <laughs> we don't ask questions. Questions are offensive. Yeah. Now, that is, I think, a nearly, nearly an eight-minute uh, clip altogether. Everyone, please get onto Neil's YouTube channel and watch that. You will have your mind blown. No spoilers, but it ends in a very 
dark, morbid place. Now, look, <laughs> it does indeed. It really does. Now, Neil. When that came out in 2015, that sort of seemed like just biting satire. But you fast forward to 2023, and that just seems like your average classroom nowadays. You were so ahead of your time with this kind of commentary. What what were the signs you saw around you, or are you just strangely psychic? <laughs> well, maybe I am. You know. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you very much. I, I think I saw the basic gist of that ideology creeping in, particularly in the arts industry here in Australia. And I could think abstractly about the concepts and the foundations of those ideas. And I think I could predict to a certain degree that this would be the manifestation of those ideas. If I were to say it as succinctly as possible, I, I think I just sort of predicted, okay, if this is the basis of the ideas that are coming out right now, this could be how it manifests in an extreme or just ridiculous way. And as you say, it doesn't even seem that ridiculous right now. It's still obviously a satirical piece. No one's getting trapped in a box yet. Yet. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I just think mainly my ability to think abstractly was, was I think, just how I could, as some would say, predict the mm. outcome. Yeah, um, and it's it's interesting because what sort of what you've done it seems is take the seeds of the ideology that were there at the time and take them to what I'd call their worst logical conclusion. I mean, I actually have a, a mini series that I did on YouTube called The Darkest Timeline, which I started a couple of years ago. Um, you know, in the wake of um, the Trump election in 2020, that basically posited that if we took the current situation in America as it was to its logical conclusion, you'd end up with the, the USA on the coast and then the United American states in the middle and there'd be a wall around them and no one would be able to get in and Trump would be leading those. Um, and it got a lot of good feedback on YouTube because I think that maybe taking these things, these germinations of ideas to their worst logical conclusion um, is quite an effective satirical tool. What do you think? I agree. I couldn't agree more. And I think people can observe the inchoate ideas that seem to be flourishing or at least seem to be propagating right now. And the logical endpoint is something that takes a creative mind to do that. And if it's done well and if it's done effectively, it can be highly entertaining. Mm. Well, you do it very well and, and very effectively, Neil, and I really congratulate you on that. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> and look, I gather from your satire of woke culture that you're generally not in any way a wokey, um, but you're also, you're also not a conservative because one of the things about you, Neil, that I love is that you're incredibly fair with your comedy. You make plenty of content making fun of conservatives as well. You do this on YouTube. Um, I've seen you do it in stand-up. Um, and that's what I really admire about your comedy, this fairness. Do you think it is important for comedians to remain fair in this way when it comes to entertainment? Absolutely. That's something that I, I keep as a major principle in my work, that I like to lampoon both sides equally, or just all sides, if you want to just say there's two sides or if there's the quadrants, whatever you want to define it as. Uh, and I like to remove my personal opinions as much as possible. There's always going to be, a, you know, an inkling of those in there. But I like to remove my personal opinions from my work as much as possible, and be as fair and balanced about uh, satirizing, uh, you know, uh, all quadrants of the political spectrum. Mm. Well, I remember um, a couple of years ago, my husband and I actually came to see you do your stand-up show on the Gold Coast. Oh, that's right. Yes, yeah, yeah. that was that was <laughs> su that was such a fun night, and I remember one moment when um, you you were doing some fabulous impression, and there was some millennial in the crowd who started yelling at you about climate change. Um, he, 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 I don't know why he started heckling you, but you'd said something, and he said blah 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 climate change, and I thought to myself what is Neil going to do here? And rather than taking it, you stepped over it so gracefully um, as is to be quite an extraordinary feat of gymnastics and continued with your routine. Um, would that have been a very deliberate choice by you to not polarise you know, one, one or more parts of the audience? Absolutely. That would have been a deliberate choice and I would not want to do that in a live show. If I had an interesting take that could be left or right leaning, I might go with it. But on an issue like climate change, I believe that would have been related to the joke I did 
in that show, which was something along the lines of, oh, China will be the first to deal with climate change <laughs> if, uh, you know, university is anything to go by. Because they'll, <laughs> they'll get it done with, uh, um, you know, months to spare, whereas the... <laughs> The, the white kids uh, will be hung over the day before and be like, oh, yeah, all right, let's get it done now. <laughs> but, um, uh, and then I get comments from a joke like that, well, actually, uh, China's doing nothing. And then hence you have to respond by saying it is a joke. That's mm. how jokes work. Uh, but I, I definitely don't... It, it, a lot of comedians now do tend to dive into the opinions and dive into the preachiness. And I'm not a fan of that. I have videos where I think we're going to talk about eventually where I have my more serious cultural opinions, but I try to keep that as separate from my comedy as possible. My main goal with comedy is just to make people laugh. And in this era of political uh, just separation and division, it's very hard. It's not impossible. It's very hard to make people or to make everyone in an audience laugh if you're taking a very strong stance on something. I think the best comedians don't take a stance either way and they have a unique opinion that is neither left nor right or cultural, uh, conservative or liberal. It's just a bizarre opinion that no one's ever thought of. I think someone like Bill Burr is a master of that and I hope that I can have a career half as good as him one day. Well, I, I certainly uh, hope you do as well, Neil, and you're certainly well on your way there, that's for sure. I, I love that fairness. And as you said, you know, you do do a lot of um, serious commentary on YouTube, which we'll definitely delve into. And, and to segue into that, actually, um, you do these pretty fabulous parodical impersonations of people. You did one recently as, of course, clinical psychologist, uh, psychiatrist, sorry, Jordan Peterson, talking about the voice to parliament on <laughs> Triple J hack. Let's have a look at that one. <laughs> Jordan, what's your opinion? Well, you know, it depends what kind of voice we're talking about. Is it the voice of the radical left? Well, that's the voice of tyranny. Absolutely not. Yikes. I feel like as a straight white male, you saying that just gives off mad <laughs> problemato vibes, hey? Okay, so let's let's talk about that. You, you, you may be thinking, well, why shouldn't we extend compassion to every group at the bottom of the leftist hierarchy of oppression? But, you know, it's, it's not that simple. Mmm. <laughs> That is, that is very, very funny, Neil. Thank you. Yes, I love it. Uh, a very good impersonation of tr the Triple J hack host type as well. They're all a little bit pr problemato. That, that's great. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it's very serious issues, but with very <laughs> casual language. Very casual so, language. Hi, yeah, we've got, to, we've got to really work on that climate change, you know? <laughs> <laughs> With the, uh, the glottal stop and every word as well yeah. to make it more casual. It's a lot of white, yeah. <laughs> Had a lot of beers last night. I think it's really important <laughs> that we talk about that mad refer that's coming up. <laughs> <laughs> it's hysterical. Thank um, you. But look, um, in all seriousness, speaking of Jordan Peterson, loved your imitation of him, by the way. You had the sort of little, little Canadian accent perfect there. Thank but you. You have indicated in the past that you are, in all seriousness, a big admirer of Jordan Peterson. What is it about him that you find inspiring and influential? It's very hard to articulate exactly what it is because he speaks to people on a deep level, on a, on a spiritual level. And I think if I'm to be as succinct as possible, uh, a lot of what he talks about is how, I suppose, new atheism came in in the early 2000s and a lot of young people, particularly young men, fell into that and that gave them a, a, a sense of meaning and purpose, but it's also created a void, a void of spirituality. And I think uh, humans have an inherent need to have some sort of spiritual outlet. Mm. And what Jordan Peterson has done is articulate the Christian ethic in an almost secular way. And it's spoken to a lot of people. Um, and I'm one of those people. And I think he's provided an extremely nuanced, complex view of human behavior, of psychology, and of the world that we currently exist in, and it has uh, resonated with me. Mm. Again, I can't, I can't tell you one particular thing or one particular opinion that he has, but I know that I, I feel inspired listening to a lot of his lectures and listening to a lot of his opinions.
Mm. And, and you're certainly um, not the only one. A lot of young men especially have found Jordan Peterson incredibly moving and motivating. And you've actually talked also a lot about the plight of young men, both satirically and also seriously. Um, I always think that millennial men like you were really lucky to have Jordan Peterson as a role model. But I think nowadays, there's a real vacuum of male role models for teenage boys and also men in their early 20s. So unfortunately, they turn to men like Andrew Tate, who he has somewhat of a message of self-improvement, fine, but there's other, other things that he says and does that are uh, questionable. Um, do you see this as a problem? Absolutely. I think if you just look at the mental health outcomes of young men in particular, it's disastrous. And I think uh, if I... Some of the ideas I talk about in those video essays is how much the progressive ethos is buttressed by a social constructivist perspective. The idea that human behavior is inherently and infinitely malleable. And I don't think that's effective. I don't think that's effective in helping men. I think men need to be, I, I don't think this idea of telling men like, hey, you, you, you're fine just the way you are and you deserve love and you deserve compassion. Of course, we need some of that, but we also need a healthy dose of, okay, this is what you can achieve. This is how you can be better. This is a cause that you can dedicate yourself towards. And that is, when it, that is what is gonna give you meaning and inspiration throughout your life. And mm. I think we have a lack of that because that's associated with um, traditional masculinity and, and the, the line of that has been blurred with toxic masculinity. And it's very hard to differentiate the two because they can sometimes seem very similar. Uh, a man who could be described as positively masculine can seem very similar to a man who could be described as toxically masculine. And for a lot of people, that differentiation is hard, but I think that differentiation is needed and, and vital. Mm. Yes, I, I, I think so too. I, I, I often think probably the most maligned group of people in society, one of the most maligned group of people in society nowadays are actually young men because teenage, teenage boys, because they just, they, it's unfashionable to want to help them and to be charitable towards them philosophically and, and in every way. So I, I so agree with you. And look, speaking um, of young men, um, we have to talk about uh, one of the characters you've created, a very famous young chap called the Cog Dog. Uh, <laughs> That's a good segue, very different, very different themes to very what we've been talking themes. about. Yes, well, see, on, on the vein of toxic or positive masculine, Identity, cog dog sort of could fluctuate between that's true, between that's the true. Two. <laughs> He's an Indian lad and he lives in Cogra, which he claims <laughs> is just the baddest suburb in all of Sydney. He thinks he's a gangster. And um, we've got a little clip of Cog Dog that we'll have a look at. Cog money, Cog City life. Big Cog Dog, this the spot, man. Anything goes down in the Cog, this is where it happens, bro. Ops get ratatad. Hustlers get Gucci'd, always happens. See, if the G's want to congregate, this is the spot. It's the G spot. It's what we call it, man, up in the cog, is that G spot, cog life. <laughs> Usually when I come in the G spot, it's wet. <laughs> now, Neil, what, what, what is so entertaining about Cog Dog is that he's so specific. Like, where where did the inspiration for that character come from? Uh, that one has a much simpler explanation. I just think there are a lot of, well, young men who aspire to be like gangster rappers and emulate that culture. And the way that they present themselves is just extremely cringeworthy <laughs> and hilarious. <laughs> and that's the inspiration for Cog Dog. And wasn't he, he was one of your very, very early character creations as well, wasn't he? Yeah, I uh, came up with that character while I was still in high school. Uh, I would have been 17, I think. So oh, wow. I, I, I left him for a while and I brought him back in 2020 and he actually, uh, the videos went better then. So he made a bit of a comeback after he was in prison or something. <laughs> <laughs> so he's back. <laughs> well, I'm very glad he's back because he's, he's one of my favourites on YouTube. Um, but Thank as you. you. I really, I, I think he's hysterical. It's that weird, that, that 
woof. I don't don't think I'm doing it right. You do it much better. The gang signs, the The, K for cog dog. Yeah, with the sort of the constant moving around. (laughs) It's so, so funny. But as you you mentioned, your YouTube career, it isn't just only comedy. Um, You also do podcasting and serious video essays. Mm -hmm. Um, And one piece of commentary of yours I found fascinating was a video called Activists and People of Colour, an Abusive Relationship. And in it, you talked about the saviour, victim, persecutor triangle or the drama triangle. Um, Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so I've been really interested in psychology for the last couple of years. I think a lot of that is because of Jordan Peterson and I've read as many books as I can. And I remember reading one book in particular called The Understanding the uh, Persecutor Victim Drama Triangle. And it talked about how many of our subconscious inclinations come from childhood or come from the relationships we may have had with our parents or early caregivers. And whatever role we were set into in that period of our knowledge, it it, it sort of manifests later on in our life. And I found many parallels in that premise with the way that many of these progressive activists talk about people of colour or any seemingly oppressed group. Uh, It doesn't, it, it, on the surface, it seems like compassion, but I would argue that for many on a subconscious level, it's about keeping uh, these oppressed groups in a state of dependency and in a state of victimhood so that they can fulfill the urge to feel like a savior. And, and actually the left does talk about this as well. They have the white savior trope. And uh, the right talks about this. I think both sides are accurate in uh, their uh, articulation of that phenomenon. It's just very hard to tell someone who's in that saviour mindset that, hey, what you're doing may actually be a lot worse for this group, a lot worse for this person, uh, because in their mind, they think, firmly believe that they are doing what's best for that group or for that person. Um, the, the strongest parallel that I could make would be an emotionally abusive relationship when a partner is saying something like, hey, you need to do this, you need to think this way, you need to act this way because I know what's best for you and I'm trying to protect you. And we all seem to have this knowledge now, especially millennials who are obsessed with uh, relationship trauma and (laughs) what's problematic in a relationship. Uh, We seem to have this basic knowledge that that can, you know, cross the line into emotional abuse. And I think on a collective scale, that similar phenomenon has occurred with activists and, yeah, people of colour, but other, Mm. you know, oppressed groups. Yes, and you had a... uh you relate in that video a very direct experience of that that you had. You said when you were about 19, <laughs> you and you and a, a girl who happened to be white were having a, a few drinks and you had a few too many and she started crying and apologising <laughs> for being white. I mean, I hate to sound like a psychologist here, but how did that make you feel? Oh, it was just bizarre. Uh, <laughs> it was weird and, yeah, uh, I don't think that's going to help any person again. No person of colour wants that. No one no one wants to hear something like that. That just seems like an outpouring of shame. Um, and, you know, maybe it came from a good place, but I just can't imagine how this collective guilt is going to help anyone. Yeah, and you, you've, you've got to think of, like, the mental health of that white girl as, as well. I mean, what has culture impressed upon her, do you think, that she thinks she has to literally cry and apologise for her race that she has no control over? I think it's a lot of collective guilt, and I think it also comes down to, I think there's elements of the saviour mentality. I think there's also elements of a Nietzschean kind of slave morality there. And I think all of those... Uh, factors have fermented to create a culture where people feel very guilty about certain things that they're not in control of and we've moved too far towards a collective consciousness when there is also an inherent need to see people as individuals and there's a there's there's space to see people as part of a group and there are certain uh, times when that's applicable but I just think the pendulum has swayed way too far one way and it's a very cynical and uh Mm. almost narcissistic way of uh, viewing the world because it's that covert kind of narcissism where it's not someone who's being grandiose and talking about how great they are, but it's someone who's trying to bring everyone else down so that they can be as oftentimes as miserable as this other person. And it's a dark thing to, to think about, but 
I, I think there are elements of that in what we see in the zeitgeist today. And again, this is somewhat, something that Jordan Peterson articulates far better than I can, but uh, he, his ideas and his prognosis for some of these uh, cultural memes uh, are what inspired me to have more of that nuanced view that I tried to articulate in that particular video essay. And it was a really um, nuanced, fascinating perspective. I, I really enjoyed watching it. And, and another video essay of yours that I enjoyed was where you talked about how, for millennials specifically, we're so obsessed with, you know, problematic relationships, but there needs to be a whole new dating system in terms of how we interact with each other. I, I mean, can you elaborate on, on that as well? Sure. Well, my basic uh, premise in that video was just observing the trends that we're witnessing today, it's quite alarming. I mean, you look at the amount of people who just are not willing to date, but and it's not as though they don't want to date. They want to have a partner when they ask people, and this is not my opinion, the statistics do show that when you ask people, would you rather be single, would you rather have a partner, assuming that it's a partner that you, you know, respect and are, are in love with or can, <laughs> you know have a relationship with, a lot of them say yes. And, and you know, loneliness is um, on the rise, uh, but the current way that we're doing dating, the way that it's evolved throughout, you know, post-sexual revolution, and now with the advent of dating apps, it just isn't working. People mm. are depressed, people are extremely cynical, they're guarded, and this is just, it's not going well. Um, mm. A lot of single people will talk about how terrible it is to be single, how bad it is out there. And of course, there are some people who genuinely enjoy that. I'm not trying to shame anyone into feeling like they have to, you know, get married and have children <laughs> or anything like that. But um, now we're hearing a lot about fertility rates and, and dwindling birth rates as well. And uh, I think uh, in, in a broader sense, Western society probably has to deal with the conundrum that it wants to uh, enhance and protect individual personal liberty as much as possible, but it also needs to not collapse in on itself. And if no one is having children, um, we can see how that trends towards a dwindling economy and just a dwindling quality of life. And countries like Japan and, and Germany are already ahead of the curve on, on this. So the next 20 to 30 years, I, I think that's a major existential question that mainly millennials have to answer. Mm, I, I think so. I mean, I'm um, fortunate enough to be married, very happily married, and I look at um, people younger than me today who are single and I feel sort of like I got on the last chopper out of Vietnam. Like, it, it's, it's, it's that sort of sense of, thank God I'm out of it because it's, it's so hard nowadays and I, 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 I do agree, something has to give because what we're doing isn't working. Um, and look, stepping sideways from YouTube um, mm -hmm. a little bit, you also have a television career. and A uh, very brief one. A very brief <laughs> one, but there was a project that caught my eye, uh, was a mockumentary that you made called Head Above Water. Oh, God, <laughs> don't play any of that. <laughs> in, no, 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 in which you play Ricky Scruton, who is one half of an epic surfing rivalry, and I believe your rival becomes famous not for surfing, but for punching a shark. Here is some of the trailer. Oh, Benji dear. Holt, crazy about surfing <laughs> since the very beginning. Up against him, his rival, Ricky Scroton. Getting into S Bay is why a lot of people start surfing in the first place. S Bay 2015 was bigger and better than any year we'd had. I'm gonna try my best, and uh, that's all I can do. Feeling pretty confident, you know, body's feeling good. Competition nearly over, Benji really needs to get some points on the scoreboard here. <laughs> I don't know why you didn't want me to play that. That looks like so much fun. I, I mean, is TV an avenue that you'd ever like to pursue full-time? It always was when I was younger. Um, right now, I'm not sure. Um, I look at TV and I compare that to having an independent career online and weighing up the pros and cons. I think having an independent career online is something that I'd prefer, but having said that, if the right opportunities come around from traditional media, I'd, I'd be open to them. 
but it's definitely not a, a, a passion or a dream of mine to, to be in movies or be on TV anymore. Mm, and I think probably what you would run up against as someone who has a nuanced perspective uh, on the world, television like theatre is, is also pretty ragingly left leaning, like you'd, you'd, you might run into a whole lot of uh, wokies in there. I mean, television would be great, wouldn't it? But I'd imagine you'd find that quite frustrating and feeling like you had to self-censor, for instance. Yeah, that's the other thing. Um, in the brief experience I have had in some traditional media outlets, though they haven't sort of explicitly said you can't explore this or you can't say that, there has been this subtle pressure to conform. Um, I wonder if that cha will change. Uh, I know, per, this is just anecdotal, but I know people who work in what could be described as culturally left-leaning outlets and their personal opinions don't necessarily align with what the uh, outlet is presenting. Uh, so I wonder if the pendulum will swing back, but yeah, right now, especially comedy, I think comedy on TV is all but dead. Um, I really look at the comedy on TV, even in America, it's kind of sad to see, but Saturday Night Live used to be a bastion of, of great comedy and it used to be how uh, comedians made their name in America. And look, I'm not, they're still doing some good sketches, sure, but I think I'm biased being on the internet, but I think by far the best comedy is coming out of independent comedians online. Mm, I would have to agree with that. I think there's so much work pressure in television nowadays that it'd be sort of impossible to, I mean, how, how do you write a television show and, and pitch it for pilot season nowadays? It would have to have all sorts of A, B, C, D, E, G, X, Y, Z identities in it, feminism, trans <laughs> politics. That's and exactly. I've got a funny story, actually. There was um, a show, or well, I can't go into too much details about it, but um, I know someone who does a great impression of uh, a certain celebrity and the person who was doing the impression was white and the celebrity is a person of colour, they're friends. And mm. the, the person of colour, I, I don't like that term, by the way. Mm. Um, I, I really resent that term, but <laughs> I have to use it in this context. Um, they loved the impression. They thought it was hilarious. Uh, they've literally seen it and they think it's funny. Yet uh, other people in this project pressured him to not do that impression because they felt uncomfortable um, having someone who was white impersonate someone who wasn't white, which, again, I think is just infantilizing towards people who aren't white. I can... Mm. Sure, there are some people who do bad impressions and maybe there's an undertone of, you know, I wouldn't call it racism, but uh, bitterness, but that's pretty rare, I think, for, for the majority of uh, comedians and for the majority of people who are looking to entertain... They don't have any malice about what they're doing mm. and there's also a big difference between a, you know, a, a really bad joke you hear from someone who's not a professional comedian and a, and a great joke or a great impression from someone who uh, knows people from other cultures and, and actually understands the nuances. And, and look, I, I love it when someone like Andrew Schultz does a joke about Indians because he knows so much and it's hilarious and, it's, and it shows that he really understands the culture and I would hate to have something like that censored just in case there's an ultra-sensitive Indian person who doesn't want to hear that or who thinks uh, why people shouldn't be doing jokes about Indians. I think we have to get to a point where everyone feels comfortable comfortable joking about everyone and, and of course, you, you can still criticise a joke and say that's not a good impression or that's not a good joke but... Uh, I think we're just way too careful right now with everything and that anecdote was a perfect example of mm. what's wrong with mainstream comedy. Well, I think so and it's it's very condescending, isn't it, towards, you know, as people, I don't like that term either, but we'll call it, for all intents and purposes, we'll say, we'll say people of colour um, in this context because it works. But um, this, this idea that certain white people have that somehow people of colour need to be protected from being offended by white people. I think that's where the racism is. I mean, I'd probably call that the bigotry of low expectations. What do you think? I agree. That's uh, a great term that was coined by Majid Nawaz, I believe. And it's infantilizing. And I don't think that helps people of color at all. Uh, I think that's 
actually quite frustrating. And I, I suppose it comes from it, it can sometimes come from a good place, but mm. for other people, the, a, a good analogy I like to uh, use is. We know now that there are a lot of what people would call incels online, Mm. i.e. men who have never really had a lot of experience with women and they get exposed to these theories and they almost study how to speak to women and how to interact with them without actually having any experience. And I think you can draw parallels to people who maybe haven't actually been around people of colour and who maybe think that's the right thing to do and have this view that there are all these really low-status victims who can't handle any criticism or can't handle any adversity. And it's extremely infantilizing, it's extremely patronizing, and a lot of people of colour are actually getting kind of fed up with it. Mm, I'm not surprised. It must be incredibly frustrating. I mean, I, as a woman, um, feel a similar thing when, you know, people, when men on the left sort of talk about, you know, oh, well, we have to honour women and not, I'm like, well, you calm down. I can take a joke and I'm a good sport, please. I'm not some little, you know, delicate flower, despite my name being Daisy. Uh, But it is a, it is an interesting paradox. Um, Now, Neil, We, of course, have to talk about your incredible stand-up career. Um, You started doing stand-up comedy at the Melbourne Comedy Festival when you were still in high school. I believe you were the youngest performer there that year. And you also performed at the New York Comedy Festival and the Sydney Fringe Festival. And you have been touring on and off ever since. Um, What is it about stand-up that appeals to you the most? I like stand-up because it's all on you. <laughs> and as you can <laughs> probably tell from this uh, interview, I like being an individual and being as in control of my destiny as possible. And stand-up comedy is the one artistic discipline that affords you the most individuality. And you don't have to rely on a casting director. You don't have to rely on a manager. You don't have to rely on anyone else. It's all on you how hard you work, how funny you are, how much you can resonate with the audience. And uh, that's why I was drawn to stand-up so much. And from such a young age, that's what I find so impressive as well. Were you sort of 18, wasn't it, when you were doing the Melbourne Comedy Festival? Uh, The first gig I ever did, I was 15. 15, yes. How did you have the courage? I think of myself (laughs) when I was 15. There's no way I would have been able to do that. Um... I actually, now that I remember, I may have been 14. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I have probably the same height. Um, <laughs> but I just, you know what? The first time I performed, I would have been 11 and I did my primary school musical. And I was actually just trying to impress my friends because everyone else who was auditioning for the musical was taking it very seriously. And I took it as a bit of a joke. Uh, but because I was taking it as a joke, I was really comfortable and wasn't nervous at all. And I ended up getting the part and I just fell in love with being on stage and performing and the energy that comes with being in a live environment like that and, you know, um, drawing more energy from the crowd and being able to entertain people and have them transfixed on, on you. Maybe there's some, uh, you know, self, you know, something there where I like the attention, who knows. But mm. <laughs> um, then the next logical step was, uh, was stand-up because I really loved character acting. I, I love, like I said, Chris Lilly and Sasha Baron Cohen were the biggest inspirations for me growing up. And I wanted to do something like that. I wanted to do really funny, realistic characters and like with Sasha Baron Cohen, also uh, add some sort of satire in there. Um, so my early stand-up was actually just a lot of me doing accents and impressions and, and characters, and it has since evolved into um, more uh, actual joke writing. Mm. Um, so I think I just, I don't know, I was always a little bit nervous, but yeah, it was just something I, I, I loved doing. I loved the feeling of, of I loved the thrill of, uh, being on stage in the lights and not knowing what's going to happen. It's, um, I'm, mm. not, I'm not a very thrill-seeking person <laughs> elsewhere in life. <laughs> I'm always five kilometres under the speed limit, but uh, that was the one avenue where I felt like, oh, this is exciting and this is thrilling for me. And, and yeah, I, I just I fell in love with it. 
What always gets me about stand-up that terrifies me is that idea of, of you telling a joke and then the joke just not landing or, or there being a really quiet crowd. What kind of tricks do you have up your sleeve to kind of con cajole an audience that might just be a little bit on the, a little bit on the down low? Uh, there's a few tricks you can you can reference that they didn't laugh at it, and <laughs> if you have sort of won them over earlier on, they tend to laugh at that. Um, or you just have to keep powering through, and you just usually what you'll do is have a series of jokes one after the other. So then, if a few of them don't land, then you know hopefully the other ones will land at almost like a backup plan. But look, that's also just part of the part of the profession. You're going to have to go out there and try some jokes and, and you know, you, you're not sure if they're gonna work, they're funny to you, uh, but they may not be funny to a general audience or, mm. or in that context of someone on stage performing. And it's, yeah, it's not a nice feeling, but it's, <laughs> there's no better feeling than when a new joke works. That's the best feeling in the world, so it makes it all worthwhile when, when you do write a new joke and, and they all laugh at it, That's, mm. that makes it worthwhile. I, I can imagine it's it's incredible, and you you actually have a, a stand up tour going at the moment, and I we've got to chat about that. Neil, tell everyone about your stand up tour, and also where they can go to book tickets. Sure. So I have a stand up tour that starts in mid October. I'm first going to Perth, and that one's nearly sold out. Uh, the show is called Villanera. So another uh, well, that's actually a Zuma term. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going through my Villanera, uh, clearly. So uh, you can get tickets at neilkolhatka.com. So my name is N-E-E-L-K-O-L-H-A-T-K-A-R.com. And I'm doing all the capital cities in Australia, plus Newcastle, Gold Coast, and Canberra. Oh, well, obviously Canberra is the major capital, but um, yeah. <laughs> is it really? Is it really, though? Uh, no, you know, it's <laughs> one of those ones where... I guess we have to call it the capital. Yeah, just because we have to. <laughs> yeah, but we all know it's Sydney, so. Yeah, pretty know. much. I live in Brisbane, but I'm, I'm from Sydney originally, so yeah, but very, very much on the Sydney bandwagon there. And just before we go, Neil, uh, tell everyone where they can find you online as well. So I'm on all the major social media platforms, uh, just my name, N-E-E-L-K-O-L-H-A-T-K-A-R. I know that's a, that's a mouthful. <laughs> um, and I'm on Facebook, Instagram, I'm actually not on Twitter, and I'm so much happier. Mm, yes. <laughs> I deleted my, <laughs> deleted my Twitter three years ago. <laughs> uh, I was getting way too addicted and immersed in all the arguments on there, and I don't know how you do it. Uh, I'm, I'm much better off without it, so I'm not on that one, but uh, TikTok and Instagram and uh, all the other ones, um, and YouTube, if you just search my name, I'll come up. Neil Kolhatkar, it has been amazing having you. Everyone, please go to Neil's website and book tickets for his stand-up tour. I will absolutely be attending the Brisbane performance. I cannot wait. Neil, all the very best for your work and your tour, and I do hope we can have you on the program again soon. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. I had a good time. Well, that's all we have time for on Daisy Cousins Presents. How incredibly fortunate are we to have had the dynamic Neil Kolhatkar on the show tonight. What an incredible talent he is. Make sure you tune in next week for more of the world's most fascinating creative people. Good night, world. I'll see you soon.